Baseball, I know some of you love when I begin a sermon that way. Baseball, of all sports, is clearly a game where every play is built upon the last play. Every pitch leads to the next pitch. No matter how insignificant a ball or a strike or even a, even a throw over to a base, it all fits together. Every swing, every hit, every out. When you sit down to watch a baseball game, it just constantly builds on itself. And some of you say, yeah, that's why it's so boring. It requires too much of my intellect to watch. I would rather just zone out. But to really see the glory of baseball, you've got to pay attention. You've got to know what's going on, and you've got to see how one play leads to the next play. And then every now and again, there's an amazing play amongst all the other plays. There's a highlight, there's a great catch, there's a stolen base, there's a home run, there's a triple, which I think is one of the most amazing plays in baseball, is just the triple. You hit it to right field and you run all the way to third, it's amazing. But the highlights in baseball of all the other plays, all of the other decisions, are actually really a small percent of the game. Probably sometimes less than 5% of the game is some amazing play or a highlight. And during this time of the year when baseball is kind of wrapping up and there are pennant races, um, my sons, Jonah, Isaac, and myself, we, we really tune in to what's going on with the Atlanta Braves. And we, we keep up with what's going on with them day after day after day. And we always talk about the games and yet, they're in school right now, and so a lot of times, they're not able to watch a whole game because they go to bed. They have to get up early the next morning, and I'll be able to watch how a game ends and follow along. And they keep up with the games, though, by watching the highlights. They get up every morning. They have some channel on YouTube or something, Braves Highlights from last night, and they watch the highlights. And then I'll see them, and I'll say, did you see that we won? And they'll recount to me the highlights of the game. They'll say something like, yeah, we saw where Greg Olson hit a two-run home run in the eighth inning. Or we saw where Dans Dansby Swanson made an amazing play at shortstop. Or Ronald Acuna, he ran through a stop sign at third and, and scored the winning run. And they'll recount all these highlights to me. And yet, I'm sitting there and I've watched every play of the game most of the time. And I realized they didn't see some of the most strategic plays of the game. Some of the games, that, some of the plays that even required courage. Like when Austin Riley didn't swing at a 3-2 breaking ball. I know some of you are falling asleep right now. Wake up. He didn't swing on a 3-2 count and he drew a walk which led to the winning run. Or the decision to bring in a left-handed pitcher who wasn't doing well, and yet he was able to get a ground ball to the shortstop to end the game. Or the hit that caused the left fielder to move one way or another, and this is how Ronald Acuna was able to score on the next play. They don't see all of these little details. When we think about faithfulness, 
So often we only talk about the highlights of our life. We only talk about the amazing place. We only talk about what you see before men, what's posted on social media, what receives applause and awards. We only talk about the highlights. And yet what we learn in our chapter today, Nehemiah chapter 2, is faithfulness, the story of faithfulness cannot be told with just the highlights. Actually, faithfulness demands thousands of courageous steps and decisions over time. Courageousness and faithfulness from you today demands just the next step that many of us won't see, many of us will never know about. Faithfulness and the story of faithfulness can't be told with just the highlights. But what does faithfulness look like in the life of Nehemiah? What does the courageous next step, next decision look like in his life? Well, first of all, we see that faithfulness means a job. Back in chapter 1, we see the chapter ends with Nehemiah declaring, I was a cupbearer of the king. And we talked about this last week. This is a man who wasn't a priest, wasn't a prophet, wasn't a known leader among Israel. He was a cupbearer, had a job for the Persian government where he tested the, the wine and the food of the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And yet, as we see, God is the one who gave him this job. God placed him in that position, and he will use Nehemiah for his faithfulness. Something from the outside in you wouldn't have seen in the moment. How is God going to restore his people in Israel? How is he going to prove he's faithful to Israel? Well, there's a cupbearer in Persia, and his name is Nehemiah. But as we talked about last week, Nehemiah has a burden for God's glory. He's broken for God's faithfulness and God's reputation among his people. And he's willing to latch his life to the promises of God. We talked about this last week. From Genesis to Revelation, God has promised to be faithful to his people, and it is a promise that is unstoppable, unshakable, and if you want to latch your life to something that lasts, that amounts to something, you figure out, how can I be a part of that promise? How can I be a part of God's promise in gathering and being faithful to a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation? And here, Nehemiah is overwhelmed with this burden, and he's hoping in God's faithfulness, and God is going to use his courage. His faithfulness requires this job that Nehemiah has, but then as we move through our text today, faithfulness involves an open door in courage. Verse 1 of chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was before him, I took it up. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And so the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you are not sick. 
This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. From chapter 1 until now, it's been four months. And remember in chapter 1 is Nehemiah is praying and he is pleading for God to be faithful to his people. Four months later, he is just doing his job. He's been praying and he's just doing his job before the king. And yet it was very important for the king to pay attention to the countenance of the cupbearer. Remember, they are tasting his food, tasting his wine, making sure it is safe. And so the king would often watch his cupbearer. Is he sick? Is he sad? And here Nehemiah says, I was never sad in the presence of the king. He had never seen me sad. And one of the points there is Nehemiah just faithfully did his job. Probably served with great joy before the king. And the king noticed his presence, his countenance. And he says, why are you, I've never seen you sad. The food is fine. The wine is fine. Everything's good. There's got to be more going on with you, Nehemiah. This is just sadness of the heart. You're depressed. You're worried. You're anxious. What's going on with you, Nehemiah? But notice how verse 2 ends. Then I was very much afraid. You see, it was illegal to be sad in the king's presence. When the king shows up, everybody gets happy because he brings gladness. And yet there's a point God is proving here. This Persian king cannot make God's people happy. What's going on in Jerusalem is bringing sadness to his heart in a way this Persian king and his job before the king cannot provide happiness for Nehemiah. And he is sad, and the king notices it. So we see the open door, verse 3. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Now this is just a formal address, respect, honor, blessing to the king. But then Nehemiah says, even in his fear, remember, I was very much afraid. He caught me. I was sad. And now he's going to confess why he is sad, which will even be more insulting to the king. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's grave, Jerusalem, it lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? You want to know why I'm sad? It's because Jerusalem has been destroyed and it is insecure. Now this would have been insulting to Artaxerxes. Because in Ezra chapter 4, the people are restoring Jerusalem. They begin to build the wall that Nehemiah is sad about. And Artaxerxes stops it. He's convinced it's rebellion. And so here, it's, it's almost as if Nehemiah is, is bringing this up in opposition to the king. The gates in Jerusalem still lie in ruin. And by the way, it's your fault. That's why I'm sad. Why should I not be depressed? And last week, we heard that Nehemiah's relatives, they come to visit him on vacation and they have recounted everything going on in Jerusalem. The gates of the city are destroyed. They're vulnerable before the, their enemies. It seems as though when people were returning from exile, they were returning back to Jerusalem, they were rebuilding the city, 
They, they got some of the walls built, Artaxerxes stopped it, and then they've been attacked again. Now, why is that so important? It's because God's glory was at stake in Jerusalem. And that is his burden, God's glory. God had promised to be with his people, with his presence, in a place. And that place was Jerusalem. That place begun in Jerusalem. And the people begin to come back. We're we're back in Jerusalem. But now we've been attacked again. And it's not just fear of the enemies. It's, has God really been faithful to us? Will God be faithful to us? Artaxerxes, the reason I am sad is because the name of my Lord God is at stake in Jerusalem. The enemies of God are gathered around. And they said, look at your God. He's not faithful to you. Look at these dilapidated walls. That's why I'm sad. And so the king looks at him. He says, so so what are you requesting? Can you imagine what's going on in his mind and how he's been a part of that story? So, So actually, Nehemiah, what are you saying? What are you getting at here? But Notice what he does. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And one of the things we see about faithfulness, we talked about it last week, faithfulness keeps praying. Continually dependent upon God because he knows God has been faithful to his people. And here's the open door. And it's a tense moment. Nehemiah could be killed for what he's doing here. And yet God has opened this door and he steps in with courage. But he also steps in with prayer. And he says, if anything's going to happen here, God, it is up to you. And he prays. Notice his courage, verse 5. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah. (laughs) He's not sitting around praying, somebody do something. Jerusalem is in danger. No, he's been praying about God's faithfulness, and he says, if someone has to do something, I will do it. And here we see his courage before Artaxerxes. He could die, but he says, send me. I'll lead the charge to the city of my father's graves that I might rebuild it. Now, one of the things we see here in verse 5 is the importance of faithfully doing our job before men. One of the things that Nehemiah can leverage before the king is he has been faithful to the king. And he's found favor in his sight. He's done his job in a way that has engendered trust and uh, credibility, and now he's going to leverage that for the people of God. It is important to faithfully serve in the workplace. It is important to faithfully serve and do your job. You never know how God is going to use it for the sake of the gospel. But then we see more courage. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, a lot of people believe this is Queen Esther, and that the king at this time was either son or grandson. But she's there, and so there's sentimental connection with the Jews here. And so instead of banishing him, sending him away, can you imagine Nehemiah standing there? What's going to happen? I said it. It's out in the open. He asked, how long will you be gone? Interesting question. So how long is this going to take? Can you imagine the relief in Nehemiah? Oh, 
So you're telling me there's a chance. How long is this going to take? And we know he builds the wall in record time, 52 days. And, but notice the next part of verse 6. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. So I turned in my timesheet and said, this is when I'll be back from vacation in Jerusalem. He says, okay, you can go. But that's not all. That's not where the courage ends. And I imagine Nehemiah at that point begins to walk out of the room and he says, hold on just a second. I got something else to ask you. Verse 7, he said to the king, if it pleases the king... Let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river. Now, that would have been appropriate. He needed documentation. There's customs. There's border control. I've got to get back into Jerusalem. I need letters from the Persian king to get beyond the Euphrates, Tigris River, back into the city. That they may let me pass through, the text continues, until I come to Judah. So he asked for a passport. And then, that's not it, verse 8. And oh, by the way, a letter to Asaph. This was a man who dealt in forestry, obviously is known for the trees and how things were built from his trees. And he says, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gate of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city. So, Give me a passport, give me documentation, and while we're at it, can you give me the Persian credit card, the business card? Because I'm going to need some wood to repair Jerusalem. And that's not it. Notice next. And for the house that I shall occupy. So give me a passport, give me some wood to build the fence, the gates, the walls. And then I need you to pay for me a place to stay. I want to put it all on the Persian expense account. Notice the courage. Not just can I go, I'm going to build a wall and Persia's going to pay for it. Some of you will get that later. And I want a place to stay. And notice there's no negotiation here. And the king granted me what I asked. And we could stop there and say, wow, Artaxerxes is so gracious. He's going back on his promise to keep the wall in Jerusalem down. This is all about Nehemiah's courage, his bravery, and Artaxerxes' grace. No, notice why this happened. The good hand of my God was upon me. Faithfulness continues to pray, and faithfulness is always careful to see God's grace. Look what God's doing. Look how God is being faithful in this moment. This isn't about Nehemiah's courage or Artaxerxes. This is about the proverb that we talked about last week. The king's heart is ultimately in the hand of God, and he leads it like a stream of water wherever he wants it to go. God is sovereign. God is in control of this moment. And he can, Nehemiah can go in with great courage and ask and continue to ask and not be scared to ask for more. 
Because God is in control and God is being gracious and kind and he turns around and acknowledges it. Notice verse 9. We see next, in faith, faithfulness involves opposition and a plan. Notice verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, crosses the Euphrates, Tigris River, and he begins to get into Judah and surrounding Judah, we begin to see the enemies of God who are still there kind of lurking around. And he begins to show people the king's letter. I have permission from the Persian government to be here. Notice, now the king had sent me with me officers and the army of horsemen. So not only has supplies and letters, a place to stay, part of the Persian army is with him. This is all God's grace. But verse 10, then Sambalot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this. Now these are governors, a Sumerian governor and an Ammonite governor. And the thing about this is these were some of the first people that were tossed out of the promised land when Israel entered the promised land. And so they hate the people of God and they hate Jerusalem. And while the enemies of God have occupied Jerusalem and, and the promised land, they have asserted their authority. And actually the Persian king has given them authority. And so the question is, why would the Persian king, why would Artaxerxes send you back to Jerusalem? We're here. We have authority in Jerusalem. Why would he do this? And by the way, you're just a cupbearer. Why are you here? Notice, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They, throughout the book, will set themselves up as the enemies of God. And so we see right off the bat, faithfulness is going to involve opposition. And it always does. That's, what, that's the essence of faithfulness, is that it's hard and that it's difficult. And so we may think, okay, Nehemiah's got permission to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem, so everything's going to be happy, fairy tale ending, everything's going to be nice and neat. No, right off the bat, there's opposition. Right out the gate. But so often we think faithfulness is going to be easy. It's going to be the clear path. And yet faithfulness, in essence, is just the opposite. It's not the clear path, and it's the most difficult. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days, set up in his hostel there in Jerusalem. And then I rose in the night. After three days, I got up. And a few men were with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. And so he, he goes into the city by secret, and he's there. He's surveying the city, what's going on, living in the city, and he doesn't tell anyone why he's there. Why? He doesn't want to create an uproar. He's already faced the enemies of God, doesn't want a conflict right off the bat in the city. And so he gets up at night. And the text says, there was no animal with me, but the one which I rode. So he rides a horse. And I went out by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. Now, those are kind of what they describe. You have a spring that ran into the city, and there was a gate there. There's also a place to toss out dung. Waste, trash. And these are the first places he goes. Why? 
If these gates are torn down, the enemy can attack. The enemy can cut off water supply. And so he goes and he inspects the, these walls and these places, these gates that he says were broken down and had been destroyed by fire. There's still evidence of the enemies of God who have destroyed Jerusalem. It's still there. I see it. The destruction. And probably as he sees the wall. And by the way, Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem. He's seen his homeland for the first time and he sees it in this state. Destroyed by the enemies of God. The stories that his grandparents told him about the prophets and the glory of Jerusalem. He doesn't see it. And so his heart is broken. Verse 14, then I went on to the fountain gate in the king's pool. These are just other landmarks that are helping us see he is moving around the wall. He says, there was no room for the animal that was under me. And remember, this is his diary. This is Nehemiah's diary. It's like a journal. And so he's writing all these details, things that he remembers. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall And I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. Now, this is a very wooden description to just describe Nehemiah is inspecting the wall. That's it. Now, why is that important? Why are these details important? These places where the enemies of God can attack. It's because Nehemiah is stewarding the provisions of God well. If I am here to build this wall, and God has been so kind to me to give me the permission of a Persian king to do it, that I'm going to do a good job. And I'm going to be faithful to the provisions that God has given me. Faithfulness requires faithful stewardship. It's very practical. Notice verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. He hasn't told anyone, doesn't want to create a stir And he had yet to tell the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials. And remember, nobody knows who he is. He didn't grow up there. He's not a hometown boy coming back to do a good thing. And he still hasn't told the leaders, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So he still hasn't put a bid on the job. No one in Jerusalem knows what's about to be required of them. The leaders don't know what they're going to be required to lead. Only Nehemiah at this moment. And then in verse 17, he calls a congregational meeting. And he says to the leaders, the nobles, those who have authority, those who lead religiously, those who are from Jerusalem, and those who will do the work, the construction workers, he calls them all together. And notice what he says, you see the trouble that we are in. And how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. Now at this point, everybody would say, yeah, that's exactly right. And we need to do something about this. We need to make this city better. We need to clean up the streets. We need to repair the walls. So it probably wasn't hard to get them to think about the repairs at this point. But notice the why. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And that's so important. The people of God are living in shame before the enemies of God. 
They look in and they see the glory of Jerusalem, Yahweh, I am who I am, Moses, Abraham, David, these prophets. That's a joke. You're a joke. Your temple's a joke. And so what does Nehemiah do? We're going to have to get to work. We're going to have to build some stuff. Why are we going to have to build some stuff? Because the glory of God is at stake. And if you're going to be faithful in the building of stuff and the doing of practical things, you've always got to remind yourself of the why. The glory of God is at stake in what I am doing. The glory of God is at stake in the building of a wall, hammer, nails, God's glory is at stake. That's what he connects it to. And then verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God and that it had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken. Now, at this point, he's saying, God's glory is at stake. And let me let y'all know, God cares about his glory. That's why I'm here. I wouldn't be here if God had not already been faithful to this task. That will be done for his glory. God cares about his promises. And it's evident that I'm here. I'm here with documentation. I'm here with supplies. I'm here with permission to do this from the man who squashed it before. God's faithfulness is right here. Let, let's get to work. And notice what they said. Let us rise up and build. Now, so far, they've been lethargic. They've been apathetic to God's glory and their walls, and they hear of God's faithfulness. God is on the move. Yes, let's get to work. This is for God's glory. His name's at stake, and they strengthen their hands for the good work. But notice again, as the text continues, when Sambalot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, the servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it. Now, there's just another enemy added here. And the feel is they're just beginning to close in. They're starting to hear about it. You're not going to rebuild that stupid wall. And they gather around, and notice what they do. They jeered us and despised us. That's hilarious. The glory of Jerusalem to be restored. Who do you think you are? You little cupbearer. Never held a hammer. What are you doing? You're not a construction manager. You're not a priest. You're not a prophet. How are you going to lead these people to this glorious task that's even going to be effective? What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, again, that's been used before. This is rebellion against the king of Persia, and we're going to tell on you. Well, God's already been faithful and given him permission to do it. But notice verse 20. Then he replied, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise. And he doesn't back down. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Here this cupbearer becomes a prophet. God will bless us according to his promises and you, you'll be left out again. By the way, he's already kicked you out once. And here it comes again. God's going to give us our land back. He's going to give us the glory of 
Jerusalem back. Now notice how all of these things fit together. The people of God, let us build. And then there's immediate opposition. But what does he come back? He comes back to the promise given to the people of God. Now again, this is so important throughout Nehemiah. He has latched himself to God's promise to bless his people. God's going to bless his people. He's going to gather a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. I'm going to be a part of that because it's unstoppable. And here you almost hear the promise made to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. He's living in the promise. But what gives him courage to live in the promise? The people of God. The people of God who he has seen that are part of the promise. Yes, let us rise up and build. We will strengthen our hands for this work. And the people of God have given Nehemiah a tangible expression of the promise. And it incites his courage before the enemies of God. That's what the church is to do in our life. We gather here and we are reminded of God's faithfulness, his promises. He is gathering people and we have courage to walk out the door. You are sent and stare down and shout down the enemies of God with the gospel. But notice this in the text. We have moved from a fearful servant to a faithful servant. That is the move of the text. Standing before the king trembling. How will God be faithful to his people? Oh God, would you be faithful to your people? Nehemiah, why are you sad? And there is one open door. One moment of courage that he walks through. Trembling with fear. And he goes from Fearful before the king to shouting down the enemies of God. Shouting them down before the people. Notice the transformation in the story with Nehemiah. From fearful to faithful. And how did it happen? Along the way, step after step of courage. Not a lot of highlights so far, right? The story builds with courage. There's prayer. Then there's an opportunity for courage. There's provision. The king's going to provide these things for you. And then guess what? There's another opportunity for courage. There's a plan. And the people of God are ready to go. But then there's another opportunity for courage. The the enemies of God oppose him. And there's another opportunity for courage. And that's what faithfulness looks like. The next step of courage in your life. Just take the next step of courage. God is providing another step of courage is necessary to be faithful. God is being faithful. There's another step of courage to take. By the end of the book, Nehemiah is so courageous, he's gone redneck crazy. He's pulling out the enemies of God's hair. And he's gone from this man trembling before the king to this faithful, fierce warrior for God. And not all of that is sanctified, but at least it's courageous, right? We want sanctified courage. But you don't get there without the next step of courage. Faithfulness is not one highlight in your life. 
It's thousands of courageous next steps over time. The essence of faithfulness or to be faithfulness is going to be continuous in your life. And all it requires in this moment is the next step of courage. But where does that courage come from? Nehemiah's faithfulness is not about Nehemiah. It's not his grit. It's not his personality. It's not his leadership skill. Nehemiah's courage here is fueled by God's faithfulness. Notice the progression of the text. God's promise to be faithful. So Nehemiah prays courageously. God, be faithful and use me in this moment, this open door to be faithful. God opens up a door. God is faithful and opening up this door. And so what does Nehemiah do? He acts courageously. He plans courageously. God provides resources. So he acts courageously. God provides the people of God. So he acts courageously. And step after step after step, we see his faithfulness. But it is fueled by God's faithfulness. And so you're thinking today, I I have a sense of the next thing that I need to do in my life. Whether it's sin to repent of, trusting Christ, being a part of some ministry, giving more, praying for certain things, I have a sense. So where do I get the courage to do that? Is it just my personality? I'm not a courageous person. I'm going to get some adrenaline rush from the closing song today to be courageous to go out and do something. No. You will be as courageous as to the extent you're dwelling on the faithfulness of God in your life. It is God's faithfulness that feels courage in you. And so today, faithfulness begins with you accounting of God's faithfulness in your life. We talked about this last week. I think it's so important for you to keep that journal. How has God been faithful in your life? In your mind right now, what testimony would you give? If we just took the mic and started passing it around. I'm not going to do that. What would you say? This is, this is, God has been so faithful to me. He restored my marriage. God has been so faithful to me. He provided these resources. God has been so faithful to me. He provided these children. God has been so faithful to me. He did, how would you recount his faithfulness in your life this week, even today? How has God been faithful to you? And then ask yourself today, what is the next step you're going to take? Because you can always, has God been faithful? Yes. The question is, will you be faithful? Will you take the courageous next step? We've talked about God's plan for his church in human history, God's mission to gather people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Maybe the next step for you today is to pray courageously. God, use me. Just use me. I want to be a part of your story. Use me. Some of you are scared to pray that prayer. Because you're scared of the open door that you'll have tomorrow at work. You're scared. That coworker is going to walk up to you and say, I'm having trouble. I'm having trouble with my kids. Can you help me sort this out? And you're going to have an opportunity to be used by God and share the gospel. And you're going to need courage. Guess what? The step in praying the prayer, and then the step in sharing the gospel. Just the next step. Focus on the next step. When God opens a door, take it. God has provided resources for some of you. 
And you need to be courageous with your resources. He's given you a home. You need to think about how can I use my home for the sake of the gospel, for fellowship, for evangelism. Maybe it's hosting a BFG. Maybe it's just inviting your unbelieving friends over for the sake of the gospel. But go home today. God didn't give you that home so you can drive in the garage, shut the door, close the blinds, and watch TV. He's been faithful and gracious to you and given you a home to use for the sake of the gospel. How will you use your resources? Some of you need to budget and think about, oh, the the economy, what's it going to be like? And you need to be courageous in giving more for the sake of the gospel. God has provided, he's been faithful to provide people in your life. Think about God's faithfulness in all of the friends that you have that love Jesus. Just for a moment. You don't deserve those friends. Think about God's faithfulness in the people of God all around you in this moment. You don't deserve his faithfulness, and yet he's faithfully brought you here today to look around and see his faithfulness. And so the question for you is, how will I act courageously in light of this faithfulness? What will I do in light of God's faithfulness in giving me and seeing his blessings in the church? For some of you who've been around here for years, you've seen the whole story. And it blows your mind. Well, faithfulness for you today isn't to say, I've done my time. It's not. Faithfulness for you today is to courageously say, yeah, God has been faithful to this church. How can I finish strong? How can I finish strong for the glory of God? He's been faithful. I don't deserve this blessing of this church. How will I be faithful? Others of you, you've been taking in God's faithfulness, and we want you to do that here, the faithfulness of the gospel. But at some point, you've got to take the next step of courage and join And lead and be a part of a ministry. Sacrificially serve. Fill out a connect card. Go to Essential Heart. That's not gimmicky. Maybe it sounds gimmicky to you. For some of you, filling out that card is the next step of courage. And you're scared to death to do it. But God's been faithful. Look around the room. Some of you in these moments... You've heard the gospel today. He's been faithful. You've heard the preaching of the word of God today. And you're convicted of sin in your life. And God has been faithful. When you're not convicted of sin, that's when you need to be worried and scared. If you're here today and you're convicted of sin, that's God's faithfulness in your life. And the next step of courage in your life is to text a friend and say, I need to get together. I need help. I need accountability. The next step in your life, courageous step, is to confess sin. God has been faithful to convict you of sin. Will you respond with a step of courage? There are hundreds of ways God has been faithful. Will you be faithful today? And all the plays make sense in light of one highlight. On the cross, Jesus died for your sins. But the cross is a culmination of God's faithfulness to you that began before the foundation of the world. And every second that is ticked off in human history, Jesus knows what is coming at the cross, and yet he takes the next step of courage. He knows he's going to die for your sin. 
And so in Jesus, we have one that he, he didn't leave a, a, a foreign kingdom to come rebuild his father's home. No, he left his father's home to come rebuild a foreign, destroyed world. He stepped from heaven to, to die for our sins, and he didn't come to enemies who jeered him. He came to his own who did not receive him. He came to those created in the image of God, in his image, and they did not rise up to join him in building something awesome. When he came, they rose up to kill him with their hands. And Jesus, before the foundation of the world, knows that's coming. And he continues to move forward in faithfulness, courageous faithfulness, knowing what's coming. Also knowing every sin that you would commit that would lead him to the cross. Imagine, Jesus knows this and yet he moves forward in faithfulness to you. And maybe that's not in the highlight reel. But you can't tell the story with just the highlights. Highlights.